Good morning. You know, I've been doing this so many years, I always want to say, it's good to see you. It is good to see you. Uh, I wish I could see you. Uh, I'm glad Christine mentioned that uh, we had a great time of uh, community last night at the uh, drive-in movie, and it was pretty exciting to all get together. I want to thank... uh, I want to thank Jared Irvine, Stephen Elliott, Brittany Kalmink, Sam, Samuel Lopes, um, Michael Lopes, a lot of people, a lot of hands on deck, but it was a, a great experience and it actually an answer, at least to my prayers, it uh, was cooling off and there was a nice breeze and so uh, a special evening. I had a picture on my phone, but I don't think you could see it if I showed it to you, so... Uh, we hope you can join us for the next one. I think that uh, is something that we'll, we'll try to do again soon. Well, we're in Esther. This is our third time that we've been together in Esther. And last Sunday, I left off mentioning the fact that Mordecai commanded Esther and that I wanted to speak to you a little bit about that. And as we look at what I'll call the second half of our look at the character of Esther, I want to answer the question, why did Mordecai command Esther to conceal her Jewish identity? You recall in chapter 2, verse 10 and verse 20, it's mentioned that Mordecai, her adoptive father, her presumably an older cousin who dearly cared for her as a father, commanded her not to reveal her identity. It's interesting, though, that Mordecai demanded that of Esther, but he didn't demand it of himself. In chapter 3, verse 4, we read the words, He had told them he was a Jew. And it was because of that that Haman came to learn that Mordecai was a Jew. And it was as a Jew that Mordecai did not bow down to Haman, which angered Haman and was the trigger for what became the plan to basically wipe out the Jewish people as a nation. How is it that Mordecai could ask this of Esther, but not required it of himself? I'm of the opinion that Mordecai learned from the events of chapter 1 and Vashti's, I'll call it a crime, Vashti's crime when she refused the king's request. And as a result, Mordecai realized that if all the women can suffer due to the sin of a single woman, which we read about in chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, on this principle, if God should raise up Esther to be queen, and he certainly has that mindset 
For in chapter 4, verse 12, he uses with Esther and refers her to such a time as this, when God may have raised her up for just such a time. And so, I think Mordecai deducted or concluded from what happened when Vashti defied the king and all women as it were, were punished for her sin, he realized that with a replacement of Vashti and all of the young and attractive women who were virgins were being rounded up to replace Vashti, that, Vashti, that if Esther was raised up to be queen over the empire by God, what would happen If she should anger the king, who would suffer because of Esther if it was known she is Jewish? And of course, the answer is all of the Jews. And so for that reason, and to avoid that possibility, I believe that Mordecai instructs Esther not to reveal her identity. But Mordecai has no concern for himself because Whereas she would be in the position of queen, he is just a lowly official. And any wrong that he might perpetrate, any anger he might attract, any punishment he might suffer would involve only him personally and not the nation as a whole. So I think Mordecai planned that way and sought to do what was right. What is the right thing? Here, the definition is clear. I know it's just a a supposition on my part, but I hope to support it as we look again at the life of Esther. But we can understand that a decision such as that, whether we're on target or not, Such a decision is hard to make, and we can't always know if it's right. What is the right thing? Here, on my supposition, the definition is clear. Mordecai did this for the sake of his people. He did what was right, not in seeking what was best for himself. What's right in this case was thinking of what's best for others. In this case, Mordecai, not thinking about himself, but thinking about his people, the covenant people of God, he does what he thinks is right. And should God raise up Esther to be queen, he wants to ensure that she'll be in a position at a strategic time and in no way, through some fault other than her own, incur the punishment of her people. Because Mordecai knows, as he's considering this, that Queen Vashti will be replaced with a pretty girl that pleases the king. Mordecai knows Esther will be taken because all the young pretty girls are being rounded up. It's tragic, but as I said, I think Mordecai believes God may appoint Esther to be queen. 
And in that case, he doesn't want that in any way jeopardized. And he knows a queen can have great influence. God may use her at just the right time. So he instructs Esther to conceal her Jewish identity. But as we learn from the book of Esther, the reverse occurred. And we saw the first uh, Sunday that we spent in Esther that uh, reversals are sometimes very much a part of life. And certainly, reversals are a big part of the book of Esther. Had Esther, just to illustrate, had Esther revealed her Jewish identity at the outset, Haman would never have dared to propose his decree against the queen's people. Had Mordecai concealed his Jewish identity, Haman would not have sought revenge against all the Jewish people, but only Mordecai. Great and mystifying is the providence of God, our waymaker. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. And it's important for us to understand that in our lives, too, we make a lot of decisions. We make a lot of choices. I'm hopeful that we always choose to do the right thing, but sometimes we don't have that definitive certainty that we would like to have. Doing what's right is not a formula for personal success. Doing what's right is not for personal gain. Yes, it's true that good things can come to us by doing what's right. But doing what's right is not for personal gain. Doing what's right seeks God's best for others. And that can be God's best for you and for me too. Though it doesn't always lead to success. I learned that as a young pastor in his early 30s. I learned it from Joseph when he fled Potiphar's wife. He did the right thing, didn't he? And yet it ended him in jail for years. And yet, and we know this because we were in Joseph, uh, the story of Joseph not long ago. We know that it was all a part of the greater providence and plan of God. I learned it not only from Joseph, I learned it from Jonah. When Jonah was uh, kind of coerced by a whale in the hand of the Lord to fulfill the will of the Lord, which was that he was to preach to Nineveh. And when he did, what happened was just the opposite of what Jonah wanted. They repented. They turned to the Lord. And Jonah was bitter about that because he didn't want them to repent. They were his enemies. He wanted them to suffer. God was gracious. And so he sat under a gourd in the final chapter of the book of Jonah, and he sulked. And the Lord had to teach him a lesson and, <laughs> and comfort him. 
I learned it not only from Joseph and Jonah, I learned it from the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter when they suffered for doing what was right. It didn't always lead to success. Sometimes we balk, sometimes we hem and haw. But we should never turn away from doing what's right. If we can form an idea of what's right, struggle as we may, we should seek to do it even at great personal cost, even at the risk of ruin. Now I can add to Joseph and Jonah, to Paul and Peter, Esther and Mordecai. They too are teachers, teachers of what it costs, what we risk to try and do what's right. From them we learn to love the results of obedience. From them we learn that doing what's right is worth the risk of ruin. Not by the world's standards. Not by the world's standards. But there is a success that comes from faith in the Lord and doing out of good conscience what is best, God's best, for others. Please hear me. Doing what's right seeks God's best for others. And when we do that, and we realize that, we are willing to risk different states' levels of ruin to do what's right. Esther, in chapter 4, verse 16, responded with the words, if I perish, I perish. Let's back up to chapter 3 and pick up the story of Esther. When Mordecai learns of the massacre, in other words, remember he is a low-level official, often sitting at the gates of the palace. When he learns of what Haman has concocted and gotten the king to approve, which is the massacre of the Jewish people across the empire to take place on Adar the 13th. That's over 11 months away. Not a full year, but at least 11 months away. When he learns of that, he tears his clothing. He heaps ashes upon himself, and he smears himself with those ashes. And he does this publicly, and he wails in the open courts of the city, and then he makes his way to the entrance of the palace, and he sits there in sackcloth and ashes. It's reported to Esther. And she sends a trusted servant. His name is Hathok. And Hathok takes Mordecai, Esther's clothing, which 
She hopes he will take and replace the sackcloth and ashes to be able to take care of him in his condition, to encourage him and comfort him in his condition, and he refuses it. But he uses Hathak to enter into a conversation with Esther in the palace. And Hathak runs back and forth carrying these messages between Mordecai and Esther. Let's read it in verse 6 through 17 of chapter 4. Hathak went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her or to um, tell her about what was in it, and to command her to go to the king and to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of the, her people. And Havak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Havak and commanded him to go to Mor- Mordecai and say, All the king's servants... And the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called or invited, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me... I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had commanded. Martin Luther King said, a person's ultimate measure is not where you stand in moments of comfort or convenience, but where you stand at times of challenge and controversy. Everyone that I have read sees 
this crisis that we've just read as the decisive turning point. Decisive, of course, in the book of Esther and decisive in the life of Esther. The only question is this. Does this crisis reveal Esther's character or does it forge her character? Does it forge Esther into a better woman than she has been? I, of course, if you got to worship with us uh, last Sunday, I, of course, explained that I believe Esther has character, and this reveals her character. Last Sunday, I contested a popular view of Esther, who, as one author put it, never had to think for herself, take a stand or fight a battle. For this author that I'm quoting, this crisis brings about a dramatic conversion of Esther. Everything the situation demanded went against the grain of her upbringing, her conditioning as a woman, her well-established habits, and her natural inclinations. Of course, that presumes, as we discussed last Sunday, and as we are discussing now, the fact that Esther is seen in the first couple of chapters as a woman who really brings nothing to the table except her beauty. And many read those chapters and get a view of Esther as a weak, kind of waffling woman who's totally dependent on Mordecai and can't make a decision for herself. But I see it differently. I think this crisis spotlights or showcases Esther's character. I think we see Esther's true character on display. Last Sunday, I mentioned that Esther is not just beautiful, but she was likened to Vashti and had a queenly nobility. Last week, we looked at Esther, and I explained that she's not just captivating, but endearing. She obtains, and that expression, obtains grace, or obtains favor, is unique to the book of Esther. And we see that that favor that she obtains has to do with her winning, endearing personality, spirit, grace, and favor. And I mentioned last week that Esther is not just obedient, but she's faithful with a humble loyalty to Mordecai, which I believe is an indicator of her loyalty to her people and to the God of her people. She doesn't change from the description of her in chapter 2, verse uh, 10, and again in chapter 2, verse 20, after, before and after she becomes queen. So in these verses that we've just read, those who imagine a dramatic conversion see her as wobbly, 
with fear and indecision in verses 8 through 14. And they see this sudden and decisive and commanding person emerge in verses 15, 16, and 17. Look at verses 8 through 11 for a moment. Esther's reply to Mordecai's challenge is seen as a timid, self-serving excuse. She's hiding behind the king's law, not wanting to go and approach the king. She wants to avoid what's doing, doing what's right. But I see her reply in verse 11 as sensible. Remember, for one, Adar the 13th, the day of the destruction of the Jews, that's 11 months away. We're told that in verse 7 of chapter 3. So why go unasked and die? Secondly, as queen, Esther is concerned that she's lost favor with Xerxes, her husband. And she feels that if she's lost favor and she goes directly into his presence, that will not only bring death, but she'll no longer be of any influence. And so she seeks time to find a favorable time to approach the king. In verses 12 through 17, the words, if you keep silent at this time, are taken as a clue that Mordecai himself sees Esther as timid and weak, afraid to speak out. But I see those words very differently. Pay attention. If you accept the explanation that I gave a few moments as to why Mordecai asked Esther to conceal her identity as a Jew, then you understand Mordecai's fatherly demand that in concealing her identity, he is seeking to work with God since she will be rounded up and God, if he should raise her up to queen, that she would be in a position to serve the Lord and her people. If we understand then the words that he utters here, if you keep silent at this time, if we understand that in the context of his earlier command that she conceal her identity, then I think we see these words in the right light. Mordecai is specifically revoking his demand that Esther conceal her Jewish identity. He is saying the time has come that you have to reveal your identity to the king. Mordecai is not referring to Esther as a fearful woman. He's speaking to a faithful and loyal woman who has yet to deny or revoke or disobey what Mordecai has asked. He is not asking her because uh, he's not referring to her fear. 
he is referring, as I said, to a faithful woman whom he is now saying, speak up. That puts a whole different slant on the way we read this context and the way she now responds to Mordecai. Note the sequence of words, silent at this time in in that verse. And in the same verse, then it says, for this time you were made queen. And note also, he says, you and your father's house will perish. This includes Mordecai. There's nothing to be gained later by remaining silent now. This is the time, he is saying, for which God has raised you up. Conceal your identity no longer. Did Esther get the message? What else could explain such a dramatic turnaround? The very next three verses. In verse 15, we're told she replies to Mordecai. And in verse 16, she commands. Fast. Three days for me. Get all the people together and fast for me. Prayer is not mentioned, but with fasting, there's always prayer. Clearly, we see here the character of Esther. She immediately thinks of fasting, prayer, and beseeching the Lord. And in verse 17, what do we read? Mordecai did just as Esther commanded. My pastor uh, used to give commands, and uh, sometimes it was even a little frightening, but, you know, we knew the environment of the man. We knew that he was always seeking what was best in the Lord's name for his people. And uh, it wasn't about him or his ego. It was about the Lord. I see Esther just blossoming here because, in a sense, Mordecai has said, now's the time to speak, Esther. Now's the time to stand up and be all that I know you can be. In chapters 5 through 7, then, I think with this background that I've tried to to help you see in chapters 1 and 2, and then especially here in chapter 4, where Esther again plays a prominent role, that she is a woman of character and dedication. Esther is now the one who sets conditions and gives the commands. And she exhibits wisdom and sensitivity to God's timing. Are not those who look for God expected to see God where he is not mentioned? I think we who read Esther and who look for God are expected to see God where he is not mentioned. And we see God in her fast. We can imagine and should, I think, see God in what she is doing in those three days. And we can deduce something is really happening during this fast if we work backwards from chapters 5 through 7. 
What do we see in chapters 5 through 7? Let me refresh very quickly. Esther does go to the king. Esther obtains the king's favor and invites him and Haman to a banquet. Esther postpones the king's desire to actually grant her request. Three times he specifically asks her, tell me what you want. I'll I'll grant it up to half my kingdom. But Esther postpones it. She postpones it in favor of inviting, with the king's permission, the king and Haman to a banquet. And then when the king asks her again, she defers, postpones, and with the king's favor, asks a second time that he would do her the favor of attending a a banquet again with Haman. Well, what happens at these two banquets? What happens between them? Well, between them, Haman builds a gallows to hang Mordecai. Why? What just happened to prompt that? Haman was bursting with pride over his lunch with the queen at the first banquet, being a guest of the king and the queen. And then what what does he see? He sees Mordecai sitting at the gate as he's on his way home. And it spoils everything. It deflates him. It bursts his bubble, and he can't wait 11 months to get rid of Mordecai. So he sets out to build a gallows and then to get the king's permission to hang Mordecai on the gallows. What else happens between these two banquets? Well, King Xerxes cannot sleep. He asks to have the state records read. While his servant is reading the state records, he reads to the king that Mordecai saved the king's life from a plot to assassinate him. Now, why can't the king sleep? What just happened to leave the king unable to sleep? Well, the banquet. What happened at the banquet? Well, the king granted the queen her favor. She invited him to the first banquet. He asked to grant her favor again. She deferred. And notice what she says in both her invitations. She says in the first invitation that the king and Haman should be favorable, gracious to join her at the banquet for him. Verse 4 of chapter 5. But at that banquet, the king asks her again for her request, and she postpones her answer again in favor of another banquet to follow the next day, which she has prepared for them. And that's in verse 8. 
So what's the difference here? She wants the king to be her special guest, and she says, bring Haman along to the banquet for him. But in the second invitation, she says, I want you to be my guest. I want you to bring Haman along, and I want you to attend the banquet for them, which is to say to the king that the king and Haman are on the same level. They are equals. The banquet isn't just for him, it's for them. And so the king can't sleep because he's wondering about rivals to the throne. He's suspicious. What is Esther up to? Did the king ask his servant to read from the state archives about attempts on his life, about plots of sedition? Did he ask him to read from the recordings about treasonous acts toward the kings, and then he comes to the case of Mordecai, who foiled the plot to assassinate the king? Is that how Mordecai was brought to the king's attention? We don't actually know, but the king can't sleep. And I can only suspect that Esther has raised these suspicions on purpose because during those three days she sought the Lord because she has a wisdom, because she put together a plan in which she would do her best to do what's right, and the Lord would have to do the rest, and do it at great risk. Esther does not know all that has taken place between the banquets, but she does know that Mordecai is being honored by the king, and none other than Haman, the architect of the massacre of her people, had to lead Mordecai around the city, hailing him as the man favored by the king. What does that tell Esther? That tells her that at the next banquet, she's ready to talk to the king. Where was the last time that the king spent time with Haman? We saw that at the end of chapter 3. After they conspired, after Haman came came to the king with his idea to massacre the Jews, who were never named, and the king rubber-stamped, what did they do? While the rest of Susa and soon-to-be the empire is thrown into confusion, Haman and the king sit down and toast each other over drinks. They're tight. They're buddies. Esther has to be careful getting in between them. Now she knows she can at the second banquet because of what has happened in the meantime and of what God has done. Esther's plan included the waymaker. Esther's plan risking her life, included a chance for God to work. She's a a woman of character and wisdom. One more thing. 
Esther had not been visited by the king in over a month. She had not been summoned in over a month. She was breaking the king's law by going to the king. In the king's sleepless reflection between the banquets, how would he think back on her uninvited visit? along with her odd invitations, while postponing her request, when the king is ready to grant her request up to half his empire, must that not have aroused great suspicion, confusion? And how would it be met when, after the, when at the second banquet, after her plan is finally fully revealed and Haman is exposed, only then does he realize he has the full faithfulness of Esther. Because when she approaches him, we are told that she, she wins his favor. She obtains his favor. And it's as though he falls in love with her as he did the very first time. When Esther approached the king, we're told she was dressed in royalty. It mirrors in reverse the opening of the book of Esther when Vashti refused to come to the king. Both were breaking the law. Vashti's lost the king's favor. Esther obtains the king's favor. Vashti united the kingdom against her, or united the king and the men against her. Esther divides the king and Haman in her favor. And she does it all to seek God's best for the covenant people. She risked it all to do the right thing. And in this case, to divide and conquer. She moved with God for all the right reasons. But she didn't have all the assurances that we all would like to have when we take that first step to do what's right. Thinking about Esther and Vashti, thinking about how the sin of a single woman can be pinned on all of the women or the act of a single woman can be in the favor of all her people. We see again the redemptive work of God in Jesus Christ who reverses what happened in Genesis in the garden with the first man, the first man and the last man. When we take communion, when we lift the bread to our lips, we are standing perched with taking the covenant, realizing we are the covenant people of God, a new covenant that is created by the last man, Jesus Christ. And when we drink the cup, we drink that cup realizing what, what God has done for us 
in his death on the cross, that we have a, a new status, a new identity in him. If you have the bread and the cup ready, let's uh, receive the bread and the cup right now. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd blessed, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Take and eat. same way after supper he took the cup also saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood all of you drink it I don't know what lies ahead of you today, this week. I don't know what lies behind you yesterday and last week. We're stretching ad infinitum in terms of our own lifetime into the past or what you see in the future. But what we just did is a partition of time with eternal consequences. And by faith, we can live in those consequences when we take by faith what Jesus Christ has done for us and who we are in Jesus Christ. May you look back on the past from the status and identity and the place that you are and the position that you have in Jesus Christ. And as you peer into the future, murky or fuzzy as it may be, desiring as we want and wish to know more clearly what to do. May we seek to do what's right, to fulfill God's best as it is within our power for those that we can serve and do good for in Christ and do that in the power that we have from the position of who we are in Jesus Christ. This bread and this cup represent that. So let go of the past, be open to today and tomorrow, and let's go forward in the covenant and strength of God's spirit and our identity as his children. God bless you, give you my fist bump, my elbow bump, big strong hug. God bless you. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never 
stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working.
Jesus, bring your wine out of me. Jesus, bring your wine out of me. Jesus, bring your wine out of me. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning.